Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So, welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport podcast. My name is Mike Finch. I am an editor and along with, as usual, with Professor Ross Tucker, a sports scientist. And if you haven't listened to this podcast before, you'll be able to listen to all about us over the last, what have we now, two years into our podcast? Two and a half, I'd say. Almost two and a half, going into, I think, our fourth season we've uh, suggested on uh, our various platforms. And uh, every time we talk about what are we going to do in the next podcast, about 15 different subjects come up. And uh, we struggle to pin down one at a time because there's so much to discuss in this wonderful world of sports science. Uh, but today, as usual, uh, we all have our Caught My Eye section, which is always what we top our podcasts with. And uh, Ross has got a couple from our very active patron supporters yeah. at the moment who are getting quite chatty on the patron uh, platform at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, patrons have been buzzing. It's really cool. So <laughs> pa- patron, you can follow us and support our work on patron. Uh, it's listed as the Science of Sport podcast, I believe. And for a small monthly donation of your choice, you can become one of those members. And then what we've basically invited you to do is share with us anything that catches your eye in the world of sports science and sports performance, in the media, wherever it is, scientific publications. And in the last week, we've had a few. In fact, the main subject of this podcast is inspired by a caught my eye from Gary, which we'll get onto a little bit later. But First off, there's a few from you, and then I've actually got one or two myself. But let's start with Renata Cironi, who wrote in to discuss the COVID protocols at the Tour de France. And, you know, we did last week the the wrap-up of the Tour, and I Mm. I was going to do this then, and I forgot. Because it was quite clear that they'd adopted a different protocol. Recall that Rafael Maika tested positive, I think, on the first race day, and they allowed him to stay in the race. Because of a low viral load and uh, viral load, sorry. And Renato made the observation that um, Bob Jungels was similarly allowed to participate, although he tested positive at the start. I think and Chris Froome didn't partic- stop participating because he also tested positive. And so, so did Micah eventually. I think yeah. by the second, third week he was out. And mm. a number of others were also. The guy who wore the King of the Mountains jersey early, Court Nielsen, was similar. Yeah. So there seemed to be a difference in approach. Certainly in the last tour and up to this point, COVID positive meant you were gone. Yeah. And they've progressively softened that. Um, remember at one stage, a COVID positive meant you were gone and so was everyone in the team. And then it changed to a certain number in the team before the team was also asked to leave the race. So they've just before the tour, in fact, they released a new policy in which Mm. they basically say the three physicians, one from the team, one from the tour and one from the UCI would in a collegial way, it was written as such in the policy would make the decision based on a case by case assessment. And so that obviously caused controversy. I remember before the tour seeing a couple of medical doctors saying this is playing roulette with the rider's health because Whilst COVID has now been with us for two years, longer than we would have liked it to be, it's still relatively new in the sense that we don't know long COVID and what the implications and so on are. And I know 
that a number of those teams in the tour, the professional teams, have got quite strict protocols on what happens when a rider gets COVID in terms of training. So they, they take them out of the training environment. They, they enforce a rest period until the rider is deemed healthy enough. And then they have a graduated and gradual return to normal training over a couple of weeks. And they do that because they are concerned about the potential for doing intense high volume training while you have this viral disease. And so when, <coughs> excuse me, when it was announced that there'd be this potential that a rider could continue in the Tour de France, a lot of people said, oh, well, you know, this is just commerce ahead of health. This is kind of a show must go on. Because remember in the Tour of Switzerland, it was absolutely decimated by COVID mm. cases. And I, I think it's probably the f case that the UCI looked at that and said, well, what happens in, if this happens in the Tour? You know, by the second Monday, we could have a third of the race gone and a yellow or a second or a third guy is forced to leave. So I, I do think they probably modified it in response to that. And it raises some ethical issues. And that's what Renata was um, messaging about, that um, is this protocol backed by science or is it just driven by commercial consideration? <laughs> and so there's some really Very interesting stuff question. there. And I would, love to, I would love to ask a doctor who was involved in some of those decisions about it. Maybe we can, but as you'll discover later, we've struggled to find even basic information, let alone the hot potatoes like this. <laughs> um, How do they measure viral load? Well, I'd, I'd, so, so then in response to Renato's question, I went and looked at that policy document. Yeah. It's a PDF. You can find it. I'll stick it in the show notes as usual. And I looked specifically in the section that discusses this for hoping there would be some kind of citation or reference, and I could, there's nothing there. What, in other words, how to find out what they, right. how what they the, discover viral load? What the recommendation is for viral load and what the decision... Again, I, to talk about in a collegial way. Now, one thing I'm... I don't even know what a collegial way is. To be <laughs> it honest. means all three must agree and <laughs> okay. have a, a share of sandwich and uh, a cup of tea while okay. they do it. I've learned some uh, good. <laughs> so I don't... So to be honest with you, there's no official or formal... There must be a way to do it. I mean, you can measure... When you do a PCR, basically what you do is you take that viral DNA and you amplify it up until it's detectable. Now, the less viral DNA there is, the more amplification it needs. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. And so the number of cycles of amplification to some extent tells you what the viral load is. Okay. That's what I think is being done here. And I know that that was the case. There have been, there have been disputes around false positive and negative PCR mm. tests in part because of that. If you... If you took a sample and amplified it enough, you'd almost always find it, mm. the, the virus DNA. Yes. So there was a kind of a consensus reached early on in the COVID pandemic about what the recommendation was for how many times you amplify it before it becomes a, a false positive as opposed to a true positive. So that's probably what it is. And then you would have to judge it based on the rider's symptoms. If you've got a guy coughing with a fever and sore muscles, yeah. that's, that's a guy ride, who's yeah. significantly impacted by COVID. So. Mm. We would then say that Micah probably didn't have symptoms and his amplification number or the number of cycles on the PCR, assuming it is PCR related, not antigen. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe what they were doing is if the antigen's positive, then PCR to do the viral load. But so I don't know because it's not stated in that policy. Mm. It's something I'd love to find out. More broadly, though, I would just point out that doctors have always had to make these kind of ethical decisions, even before COVID. And please, I'm not for a second saying that COVID is like the normal flu. <laughs> we mm -hmm. know it's not. But prior to 2019, 20, doctors would have a sick rider present on the second rest day. And they'd have to make some sort of calculation around, right, this guy wants to race. We want him in the race. 
But if he does, is he risking his health? If he is, I'm going to pull him. If he's not, we'll keep him in, maybe with some meds. And we know how that sometimes goes. So it's a really interesting thing. And I, you can call me naive or too trusting of doctors, but I, I struggle to see that a doctor would be reckless in this regard. You can say that because they don't know about COVID, they're being reckless through lack of knowledge long term. But I... You know, so like if, you, if you've got a guy in your team and you know that you've also got the race leader at that time and you keep that guy in the race, you're not just risking him, you're risking your race leader too. Yeah. So in some respects, it would be easier to get rid of a guy than keep him in. Mm. But in others, of course, you want your teammates to be there for your, your team leader. So complicated issues actually. It also explains why Jonas Vingegaard was wearing a mask a lot of the time and so was Pogacar during the Tour de France because mm. they were obviously trying to protect themselves because there were lots of cases of COVID flying around. Yeah, and if you look at that UCR document, <laughs> it's got quite a lot of detail in there about what constitutes a bubble and what practices the team should follow. And then some teams were going beyond that. Mm. Um, I know that, for instance, the race was testing on the rest days some teams were testing daily with antigen tests and so on. And that's why we were getting cases on the Wednesday and the Thursday, not necessarily all um, backlogged or, or congested around the rest day. So, yeah, an interesting one. I suspect that it's a little bit of both. They, <coughs> and, and, you know, it's, they're within their rights to do that because by now most of the peloton is either vaccinated or has had COVID or both. Yeah. And we know the, conf the protection that confers. So in some respects, the calculus now is different to what it was in 2020 at the same point of the year and so you can see why they would be doing it i just mm. would would have liked for there to be at least some clear communication like the viral load of x below that and asymptomatic you go as opposed to trust the doctors they'll do what's right because we know that that hasn't always been the case though i again i'd like is to it, believe is that it, it is is it fair to assume and i'm Taking, putting this in a non-scientific way, that that viral load, they actually they don't really necessarily know how to judge it properly. They don't have the resources to do that. But they, when they talk about viral load, they're talking about the, the symptomatic way that the that the rider is presenting. So they they're using that as a sort of a scientific way of suggesting that's why a rider is staying in the tour. But actually, mm. it's the doctor saying, "Yeah, you can ride and you can't ride." I mean, it's it'll be both, right? Because yeah. you're right. The the presentation of the case clinically is mm. probably the main thing. Mm. You know, like, okay, how do you feel? Let's measure the temperature. Let's do some assessment. And say, actually, you know what? You're pretty flat and hit by this quite hard. Mm. But they can measure viral load in the sense that I mentioned, where you look at the number of cycles needed to amplify that DNA to when it becomes And they could do detectable. tests like that daily. I mean, that, that wouldn't require another scientific laboratory to do that. I would imagine they would have access to a lab traveling mm. with the race or a lab identified in each venue. I mean, mm. once... Once COVID hit and the race knew that testing was going to be crucial to get the race going, I reckon every host's town, finishing and start, has got mm. those facilities available for them. And it's probably a dedicated lab for it. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's an interesting one. And, you know, they got through the tour without losing anyone in the top five or ten, I think. I can't remember one, can you? No. So they got through it that way. And, yeah, um, I saw, as I say, I saw some tweets from pretty well-known sports scientists and doctors saying that this is outrageously reckless for, for for riders' health and so forth. But we won't know that until much later, potentially, if at all. Because it's always extraordinary. I think uh, the women's Tour de France, I think Annemiek van Flessen, who won it overall, mm. I think for the first few days she was presenting as being not very well, according mm -hmm. to what the commentators are telling us on yeah. television. We don't know what was wrong with her. 
ends up winning the the Tour de France uh, for women and you know dominating it actually in the end. But she clearly was not healthy, and it is interesting because if she'd gone to a doctor, would a doctor have said, "I'll." I think you should book yourself off work for the next three days, <laughs> or you can battle through whatever this illness is. Yeah. Well, but that's again putting the risk of the rider at risk. Surely. And that's the calculus that the doctor yeah. has always made, even before COVID. They were having to do that, and they'll continue to do it after. And so, what this COVID thing and Renata's observation makes us aware of is they're making the same calculus now for COVID as they used to do. Now, in that, in that instance, almost guarantee you, Van Floyden saying, "I'm just not well." And the doctor's saying, all right, but it's gastro. I think it was a gastro. They're talking, talking about a stomach bug, I think. Okay. Also didn't catch many of those details. The doctor is going to be trying to treat her, keep her on the bike and as healthy as possible. And then the recovery after the race, I would imagine, is incredibly aggressive. Mm. <laughs> like we're making sure you're adequate. Because that's the thing with gastro is hydration and mm. recovery and nutrition. So they would have been, I reckon, working overtime, mm-hmm. but saying until this becomes clearly obvious that it's hurting you or harming you we're keeping you in this race because at some point it'll lift and then you can go and knock everyone's wheels off on the second to last month she did <laughs> that she did so yeah it's, it's interesting i mean bronchitis we've seen the same thing you know Froome allegedly had that bronchitis bout pneumonia is common in the peloton remember these guys are immune suppressed by the third week mm. and so one little bug whether it's a stomach bug or flu whatever does tend to spread through them quite quickly. Mm. So doctors have long been quite comfortable handling these issues. Mm. Now they've got this more mysterious and potentially more severe issue, but weighted against that is a vaccine, prior infection, more knowledge. Yeah, it's it's delicate, but yeah, that's what they've decided on. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, good question from Renata. Very good question. Then very briefly, because this is actually a big question, and, and I said to Philippe Ticulat, uh, Ticula, I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Thanks for your question. Um, he says, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. The only other one I listen to is The Move with Armstrong's crew and in an interview with Sir Bradley you? Wiggins. Huh? <laughs> yeah, some, some armchair cycling fan. <laughs> uh, so I'm also a fan. I also listen to most of, except this one, actually. I missed it. And he says in an interview they did with Brad Wiggins, he talked about really long training sessions of seven hours with no carb consumption, even after the ride in order to burn fat. And I've heard of this. Like Floyd Landis yeah. used to say that if you needed to lose two or three kilograms, just stop eating for two days yeah. and keep riding for five hours a day. And you'd lose two, well, yes. At what cost? And so that's what Philippe's asking is, they have some scoops of protein mid-ride to avoid muscle mass loss that caught my eye. How much is sustainable to train low carb and still not lose muscle? What's the best way to ride fat burning? So, so big, obviously Wiggins admits that is that's what he did. Yeah, that's what he was saying right. they did to okay. try and lose the weight. I, oh, it's extreme sure stuff. more going into weight loss. You know, back in that era, like weight loss was the thing. It seems maybe a little bit not the case now, you know, but who knows? Yeah, it's extreme though. Mm. Now, when we did a podcast earlier this year, we did a whole series on endurance and we did one, Philippe, you might find on carbs during exercise. And I mentioned in that there's a study that was done a while back by the Dutch researchers and they took two groups and they made them either exercise with high or low carbs for a period of a couple of weeks. And then they measured performance before and after. And the group that trains without carbs does not adapt to training as well as the group with carbs. Mm. They show more fatigue. Their performance improvements get slow. In fact, in this study, they for two weeks, they deliberately overtrained them. And the group without carbs gets quite a lot worse. By the end of those two weeks, they are down in time trial performance, VO2 max, max power, and so on. Their moods are worse. 
And the point is that you can't sustain high volume, high quality training for too long with this approach. Now, I didn't know how often Wiggins and co would do that ride, but it's not sustainable if you do it daily or even a few times a week because you just never replenish the necessary energy to assimilate the recovery and adaptation response. But they were doing it for a specific purpose of losing weight. They were doing it for a specific purpose. For no other reason, weren't they? Right. And so remember when we interviewed Professor Graham Close, his number one motto is fuel for the work at hand or fuel for the work required. Mm, mm. And so at some point, if you are doing 30 hours a week in peak training, you will need extremely high volumes of carbs or you will fail physiologically. Yeah. As for the protein, I said to Philippe in the answer, we've long discussed getting an expert on protein on here and we've had a couple false starts where we had a guy lined up and then COVID gets in the way or travel or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Still planning to do that. So if Philippe can hold on to that, at some point we should do a whole podcast on protein. The simple answer is that when we do ultra endurance exercise, and I think seven hours counts, <laughs> if we run out of carbohydrates, we do start to use protein as a source of energy. Because what we can do is we can break protein down, we can turn it into amino acids, and then we can oxidize amino acids. We burn them almost, we basically turn them into glucose, called gluconeogenesis, creating glucose out of something new, basically. Yeah. And if you if you have no energy available from carbohydrates, you burn amino, there's net protein oxidation. If you have carbohydrate energy, you break protein down, but when you finish exercise, you just take it back up and you get zero net loss or gain. And the key is, do you have energy balance and do you have carbs from other sources? And, so, and you don't necessarily ideally want to be taking energy from the muscles, do you? No. Because you essentially want to be building the muscles. Correct. Or yeah. at least maintaining it because mm. you don't want to be in what's called a catabolic or breakdown state. Mm. And so there is a minimum recommendation for protein intake. Obviously, for muscle gain, you need more. And for muscle maintenance in an endurance athlete, you need less. But there is still a target you have to hit. And it has to be good quality protein. And again, this is a caught my eye, not a whole podcast. But at some point, we will explore that for you and explain it all. So that's another. The, all these caught my eyes are triggers for whole podcasts. You know, I'm, I'm verbose. Yeah. I can't answer you in one minute. <laughs> so yeah. And then the third one was Stephen Knott. And this one is quite quick. He says, this caught my eye. He found a website on which online race results were shown. And this was a half marathon from Iowa. And the woman's winner was one Shelby Houlihan. Ah. And uh, the listeners, in fact, not just listeners, anyone would know Houlihan is a banned doper, banned for four years from the sport. And so this became controversial because how can you enter and win a race when you've been banned? And it turns out it's an unsanctioned race in the US up in Iowa. And she entered it and won it. I think she was fourth overall. Mm. The three men were faster and she was or third overall even. And so it kicked off a bit of a storm and there's a journalist called Alan Abrahamson who wrote a piece which was absolutely scathing (laughs) towards US anti-doping, towards Houlihan herself, towards race organization and to anyone who's defended her. And he basically asked the question is, if a Russian athlete is banned and then shows up winning prize money and winning races, what would we say? And he calls out what he calls the hypocrisy of US sport for pointing the finger but never recognizing that they're not exactly taking it seriously themselves and I'll I'll pop that link again into the show notes it's an mm. interesting read 
because I mean, there's a number of occasions, and particularly in the ultra distance space, where some Russian athletes have raced in unsanctioned events around the world, and purely because they can, they don't have to be verified by the World Athletics because those events aren't under those banners. Right. Um, and they they do race and they do mm. win prize money. It's, it's, and Hulihan can too. Yeah. And then they say in the piece that she donated her prize money. So okay, cool. But the, the point that Abramson makes is. That the rules might allow it, but you sort of know that this is happening and they could easily clamp down on it. So who's taking responsibility for ensuring that a ban is actually a ban? Mm. And I mean, I don't know. You could argue that, you know, so someone can run these fun runs, let them do that. You know, what's the harm in that? I'm sure I'm sure Armstrong is a similar thing, right? He can compete in some races, not yes. others. And, and he does. And that particular mountain happens. biking. Yeah. Exactly. So it's not governed mm. or under the auspices of and it's one of those classically divisive issues. Then mm. three caught my eyes. Well, three, yeah, from me very quickly. First was in the last couple of episodes, we've had questions or caught my eyes from you around training in the heat in order to perform in the cool. We've spun that off into altitude in order to perform at sea level. Speaking of, article from Sticky Bottle, um, which is a great concept. I love that. <laughs> uh, headline is, Funderpool suspects altitude training for tour slump. I saw this. Yeah, so you'll recall, Funderpool was pretty good in the Giro, yes. combative, and he was there, and he racing hard, went away. There was some footage of him doing stunts in his training camp. Did you see those on the mountain bike, just playing in, in altitude yeah. camps? And then he came to the tour, and he was just well off his best. He was expected to contest in a number of stages and just never really had it. And so there's an interview with him, um, and he talks about, I may, and I'm quoting him, I mainly think that something went wrong with the altitude training after the Giro towards the tour. I didn't feel like I came out of the Jira completely empty. On the contrary, perhaps my body was still recovering and not sufficiently recovered at altitude. If you do that after a big tour, if you may need more recovery than you think, your body may come out of altitude more wrung out than better. Not 100% sure, but I have the feeling that it has to do with that, yes. So that's pretty interesting. And remember, we've said that when you go to altitude, you trade off one thing against another. And one of the things you trade off is the ability to A, train hard, but also to recover because the mm. altitude is an additional stress on top of normal training. And so if you come into an altitude camp fatigued from a tour of uh, Giro d'Italia and you suddenly now impose this high volume training at altitude on, onto a fatigued system, it's not maybe all that surprising that if you get it slightly wrong, you actually push your physiology in the wrong direction. So interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's the first thing that came to mind. He's sort of blaming the altitude, but it was the combination of the fatigue and the mm. altitude. If he got into altitude not as fatigued from the zero, he might have been okay. But right. the point was it's a combination of both. Because a lot of guys came out of altitude. Yeah. Vinogor, Roglic, obviously Pogaccia. Mm. We all know they go, I think it was always Italy, right? Mm. Um, right now, Evanapool, who won San Sebastian, yes, the classic yesterday, said he's just come off altitude. So they use it very effectively. But if it goes wrong because you don't quite match that stress to the recovery requirement from the Giro, then it's a valid possibility for Funderpool. And I often think with athletes, and I think the same thing of people like um, Wout van Aert, is that they get to be so successful at a Giro or an event and they always think they can do better. So how can I be better? The, 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 the need to be better is that, okay, let me go and have a, a zero, then train at altitude. I'll be better for the Tour de France. But inevitably, you can't, maybe that, that sort of approach is that that betterment is f too accelerated. There's not that slow betterment mm. which is required. It's that sudden need to suddenly go much better that they can't, their bodies can't cope with. Even 
a guy like Matthew van der Poel can't cope with it. So, right. Yeah. And that's where it'll be really fascinating. And one, one big part of our main podcast today is going to be talking about how we measure the body's response to stress. And stress is training. It's psychological. It's emotional. It's lifestyle. It's travel. It's altitude. It's heat. It's all those different things together. And it would be really interesting, for instance, to know, like, because these guys will measure that. Did they did they see signs of excessive stress towards the end of the Jira, but proceed with altitude mm-hmm. regardless? Did they try and dial it back, but maybe get their calibrations incorrect? I know, for instance, in the US system, um, when their endurance athletes, swimmers, biathletes, and so on, go to altitude, they, they do it very carefully and cautiously. They make sure that the iron levels are maximized because that's one of the challenges. They make sure that the first week is very gradual. You know, with the with the time between the Jira and the Tour, they might not have had the time to phase out the Jira before phasing in the new build, you know? Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's an interesting one. It would be great to know more detail. I suppose it's the simple principle that we always talk about, that recovery is just as important as training if not in terms more. of making the body stronger. So you can't just keep on pushing. It's Exactly. Not even Matea van der Poel can do that. Yeah, so that was really interesting. (laughs) Then last two, very quickly before we get on to the meter. uh, On Friday, the Rugby Football Union, which is England Rugby, announced a change in their policy on transgender participation. They, When World Rugby published the guidelines in 2020, England Rugby were one of the um, unions that said they wouldn't adopt them. They would go for case by case instead. I think they've recognized that case by case doesn't work. It creates all kinds of legal and scientific issues and so forth. (coughs) <coughs> including being potentially more discriminatory and mm-hmm. inaccurate and exposing you to more liability. And they also had an open consultation process and they got 11,000 responses to that. And while they haven't published it, unfortunately, I know how these unions work, especially those in England, and they are so conservative and so concerned about change that unless those 11,000 were overwhelmingly opposed to their previous policy, they would not have made these changes. And so they've eventually said the same thing as world rugby is that you can only play women's rugby if you are female. So it's a single sex category now, which to me is the way to go. It agrees with the world rugby position, but obviously has been very controversial on Mm. that. So that was newsworthy. And then the final thing is that the women's Tour de France ended yesterday. We touched on it briefly. First one ever. And I think... Massively successful. Yeah, in many ways. I reckon when they announced that it was going to happen, they would have said, right, at worst, we'll get through this year. It'll be a almost proof of concept. It'll be a success judged on the fact that we get a race, we get some media coverage and so on. What's ended up happening is that they've exceeded probably those expectations enormously. The media coverage has been huge. I heard that it was getting more hits on websites than the Jira. Yeah, uh, I've heard that viewership on GCN was higher than at some points in the Tour de France. Mm. The crowds on the side of the roads, amazing, and so people can't be looking at this and going like, you know, this this is a this is a fifty fifty proposition. This is a thing. This is a sure thing, and it can only now grow. In fact, even even not growing it would be a step backwards from this point. For sure. Yeah. I think what's interesting is that it comes on the back of the men's Tour de France, and I think it prevents that sort of uh, Tour de France hangover that we always feel on the Monday morning after the stage. Suddenly you've got That's something else to watch. And also 
you have a better understanding now of the personalities in the women's mm. uh, cycling that maybe we didn't know before. You yeah, know, yeah, Mariana yeah. Foss winning and, and and having the yellow jersey. She's a big name in cycling, but people know her now. Mm. Annemiek van Flerten, again, another one of the big names. And I think right. people are beginning to understand the sport and the personalities. Right. And I mean, I can't speak for what it's like in Europe, but in South mm. Africa, women's cycling was not on TV at all not until at all. about 2019, 2020, right? Mm-hmm. World champs, maybe. You'd see some mountain biking. And so these are new names to many people who are watching it. And for instance, Cecile Ludwig wins stage three, I think, and gave that hilariously emotional interview afterwards. I mean, it was terrific. Yeah. You know, she was just so, it was one of the best post-dress interviews you'll see. It was great. And so now you get personalities and it'll be very, you'd have to really mess up not to capitalize on what women's yeah. cycling has got going for it now. And 100%. I, what will be interesting is I read recently that next year's men's tour won't finish in Paris because of the, not next, the 2024, mm-hmm. because of the proximity to the Olympics. So it will be interesting to see whether the women's tour, because it follows the men's tour, how they place that in the context of the Olympic Games as well. Yeah. Like, because at some point... The women's tour must grow. It must be more than eight stages next year. Surely it's two weeks minimum, if not three. Yeah. And then then it makes for a six-week festival of cycling in France, which is amazing. <laughs> it's lovely. But causes some calendar issues around the Olympics. So there's a few tricky little decisions have to be made. But, I mean, the momentum is – I mean, it's fantastic. You know? Yeah, so, absolutely. Great mm. for women's sport generally. Yeah. Right, so let's move on to the subject at hand. And uh, we've got a very special interview with a gentleman who probably knows more about this particular subject than most in the world. His name is Marco Altini, PhD data scientist, entrepreneur amongst his, uh, look at an overarching look at his qualifications. But he has a PhD in data science. He has a a master's in uh, computer science engineering. He has a master's in human movement science and high performance coaching. And he's the founder of HRV4 training and also a data science advisor for Aura, the Aura ring, which many of you overseas will know what that is. It's a ring that you put in your finger that can measure your heart rate. And uh, particularly interesting because we've been talking about doing something on heart monitors and heart training for Mm. quite some time. But this is a guy that seems to have studied the data Mm. probably better than anybody. Right. And it's one element. So just for context, everyone knows that this, this podcast was actually inspired by a Caught My Eye submitted by Gary Hughes couple of weeks back and I put it over to now because we thought let's do a whole podcast on this and basically what Gary says I was watching the Tour de France and I saw that uh, Tadej Pogacar doesn't appear to wear a heart rate monitor an arm strap or an aura ring etc because there were some shots where Pogacar unzipped his jersey and you can see unlike everyone else he's not wearing a strap mm-hmm. and so Gary was wondering how they monitor it during the race maybe there's a device I don't know about some earphones have heart rate monitors so maybe it's that anyway interested because he would be stunned if they're not monitoring it and so Mike and I were talking and we said, well, actually, that's a cool catalyst for a whole podcast on heart rate and exercise. And, one and, we, and the, we did try and find out. Yeah, we did actually. And <laughs> we've, we, we've, we've reached out to the UAE team uh, through various contacts who then put us onto other contacts who put us onto other contacts. And mm. none of them can confirm what his whether Tadej Pogacar uses a heart rate monitor at all yeah. in training or whether he only chooses or in racing, but whether he uses, uses it in training as well. Mm, we so, don't know that. So, yes, unfortunately, unfortunately, we're speculating in response yeah. to Gary's question, but we've broadened that out to discuss heart rates in general. So we'll cover a few things. One of them is heart rate during exercise, during competition versus training, what it means. But, but I think now in 2022, one of the most 
used and relevant metrics related to heart rate is heart rate variability. And that's where I reached out to Marco, who I have mentioned on this podcast before, goes by at Altini underscore Marco, and is an amazing follower. And for disclosure, as Mike, you just said, he he's the founder of a company that measures heart rate variability. So put that out there. This is not an advertorial for him. But I followed him on Twitter and I've read some of the writing and so on on the website, Medium and so forth. And I can honestly say like he's the he's the clearest explainer of these concepts I've come across. He's, he quite readily directs people to use other devices other than his own, which I think is quite um, not necessarily noble, but I think value, important and mm-hmm. worth pointing out. And I, yeah, you can, you could, you could lose an afternoon reading what he's written on the subject. And he's written a lot. And he's a lot, and that <laughs> might make this podcast redundant. But hopefully, this segment anyway, we can bring to life some of those words, and actually, you can hear it straight from the horse's mouth. So here is our interview with Marco Altini. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Michael, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. Uh, it's lovely to have you uh, talking to us. Where, where are you talking to us from at the moment? I am uh, in Amsterdam right now. And thank you for having me today. No problem. And, and I mean, Marco, what's interesting is that um, not only do you know a lot about this particular subject that we're going to be talking to you about at the moment, but it sounds like you're also a very active person yourself, having recently attempted a very long run. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> that is right. Especially the attempted part. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, uh, well, I'm a recreational runner myself, so I enjoy running very much despite maybe a lack of uh, talent, or uh, we can call it that way. So I'm um, targeting uh, a 100K run that is uh, back in Italy where I'm from, which has some history also personally with my father running it uh, many years ago and so on. So this year we had a really hot day and it didn't go well, but I will try again next year. <laughs> okay, so how did you, I mean, looking at your qualifications, you're, you're obviously a data specialist, but tell us how you got involved in this world because it's quite a specialist space, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, well, it wasn't part of any plan I had. Um, you know, I studied computer science back in Italy. Uh, struggled maybe to find aspects of computer science that triggered my interest in particular until I did this course during my master's, which was um, what was called at that time embedded systems, uh, which is basically sensors that we place on the body or uh, in the environment, what we now call wearables, for example. Uh, But it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, so before we had commercially available ones. Um, and I got really fascinated into this possibility of measuring things from the body, which could be activity of the heart, of the muscles, of the brain, all sorts of things that we know today from um, easier to use sensors, many of them commercially available. And then starting from there, um, I ended up uh, first working a bit on these prototypes and making these sensors, so the hardware and firmware parts of the lower level um, components. 
um, then uh, doing a PhD more on the higher level um, data that is acquired. So machine learning to interpret this data and for example, gather accelerometer data and heart activity and then try to estimate your cardiorespiratory fitness level or VO2 max without having you doing a specific test in the lab, but just from activities of daily living. Something that, again, you have now today, for example, in Apple Watches or other devices that try to do something similar. Um, after that, I had already started building some tools to basically allow anyone to try to play with these things instead of just using these prototypes that we had and nobody could use. So we started making apps um, and you know, technology got better in a way that you could link to external sensors, polar straps and things like that um, using the sensors already in the phone, like the camera. And there I built HRV for training, which is an app and a small business that I run where we try to do similar things, measure physiology and interpret it. Um, and from that, then I got interested even more into these aspects of human physiology and sports science. So I went back again to school um, and did another master's in sports science um, to learn a bit more of basically the basics uh, of um, where basically where my customers were coming from, right? The people I talked to a lot um, had a different background than I had, and I wanted to try to get closer to that. So I went back to study a bit of that too. And I ended up with, uh, I would say, a mix of uh, knowledge between the two fields, even though uh, I always say I feel more comfortable with the technical stuff, <laughs> but I also try to uh, you know, understand a bit of the physiology and communicate that to others. Out of interest, Marco, when you went back, you obviously entered the world of sports science where these wearable devices were being used and you were coming at it from a let's call it a higher level of data understanding than maybe they had. Were you surprised or impressed or disappointed? What, what, how would you describe your initial reaction to what they were doing in the space that you were an expert in? So I would say that um, in academia, maybe um, a bit disappointed by where we were with these kind of things. Mm. So I think... I was hoping that we were a bit more ahead in terms of the use and understanding of these technologies. While um, sometimes I saw maybe a bit of a more dogmatic approach, um, people that, okay, we don't look into this kind of thing, it's not good. And, you know, it's technology is not measuring what it says measuring, or even if it is saying it is measuring these things correctly, it's not useful, but not because we have a deep understanding of what is in there and what what are these things that we are measuring and, and why they might be useful or not useful, but more like, you know, how, how this, um, yeah, sometimes happens a lot in sports science. People take uh, positions and, and stands and not always uh, informed by a deep understanding of the physiology and the technology. So it was, I don't know, maybe a bit frustrating at times. Um, this is improving, but very slowly. And I understand also where it comes from a bit, right? The people selling the wearables and these kind of sensors are also making very bold claims. Um, mm. So in defense of the other side, it's you, you also cannot trust <laughs> what people are saying. So you really need to have um, strong interest in understanding what you can do and what you cannot do and use these tools. Yeah. Um, and that, that is not easy to navigate. So yeah, um, 
I've uh, I've struggled with this mm. both at university and then later over the years. Um, it's not easy, and this is maybe why I spend so much trying to do much of the science communication side of things because I think that is something good in using these tools and in the data. At the same time, it's not straightforward, and there is also uh, yeah, there are a lot of nuances that maybe we discuss later that make it hard sometimes to um, to employ the tools in applied settings as well. Yeah, and I ask because, I mean, if I go back to my first ever exposure to this concept and specifically heart rate variability was probably a decade before you even set up HIV for training and that was as, as an honor student. And I remember then the, the, the field was already diverging because at that point we could measure heart rate dead easy and everyone trusted that the number you saw on your watch was accurate. Heart rate variability was disputed because back then there were still people who said, actually, the tools with which we measure it are not reliable enough to have confidence in. But meanwhile, there were other people saying, these tools are very reliable and we're going to go off and tell people how to use them. So you had this almost immediate like divergence from people who dismissed it to people who over-embraced it. And I reckon, see, I, ne I never got into it, but I reckon by the time people like yourself, Marco, came in, you were trying to pull those two parties back towards one another. Yeah, maybe they are even more far apart now. <laughs> <I> know, <laughs> everything gets more polarized. <laughs> Interesting. Because I, 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 I figured that we'd have, we've gained confidence in the tools, but now the big unknown is, well, what do we do with this number? How do we interpret this value? And that's where, that's where I've been most struck yeah. by the, the stuff you've written. And we'll put that in the show notes for people to read as well. well so let's, I mean, let's just kind of take a step back and before we get into the mechanics of it, because I said to Ross before the podcast that I only understood what heart rate variability was about a month ago when we were discussing it in another podcast. And Ross said to me, do you know that the heart is not metronomic? In other words, it doesn't beat every second. Can you, Marco, just give us a, a brief praise here about what heart rate variability is and why is it important? Yeah, sure. So as Ross was mentioning the other time, our heart does not beat at a constant frequency. Um, there is always some variability between beats, and that is due to the autonomic nervous system. So in particular, if we think about how the heart beats without the influence of the autonomic nervous system, typically this is due to the internal pacemaker in the sinoatrial node, which means that the heart beats at about 100, 110 beats per minute. And that is actually quite constant. So that is how things would work without the influence of the autonomic nervous system. And we all know that our resting heart rate, it's not that high. Typically, it's a lot lower, actually. And that is due to the fact that at rest, the parasympathetic nervous system, so the branch of the autonomic nervous system that is most active when we are at rest, so the one that is normally um, in charge of rest, recovery, and relaxation, is predominant its activity in this situation and lowers heart rate to um, anywhere between maybe 40 and 70 bits per minute or even a broader range across the population. So that um, influence of the parasympathetic nervous system not only reduces heart rate, but also increases the variability between beats. So this is something that is not obvious typically because we can measure easily heart rate again, but not so easily heart rate variability, or at least it's not something that we can measure without technology. So it's difficult for us to maybe um, yeah, grasp that the first times, but the parasympathetic nervous system is more active during different parts of the breathing cycle. And that is why this variability over a period of time, say a minute or a few minutes, 
can change even when heart rate remain constant because it might delay the next beat with the exhale or maybe shorten it during the inhale. And there is this activity that is um, higher in periods of lower stress, which cause higher heart rate variability. On the other hand, when we face a stressor, so the body senses stress, then we have a stress response which inhibits parasympathetic activity, which means that heart rate typically is a little higher and heart rate variability is reduced. So this um, the basic mechanism, I would say, that explains why we look at heart rate variability as a way to capture the stress response non-invasively, since we can just measure the change in heart rhythm. Um, and this is just a part of the stress response, right? We don't look at hormones changing and other things that is not easy to measure, unfortunately, and continuously or every day at home with cheap technology. Um, but HRV is basically what we are stuck with as the best non-invasive assessment of uh, the stress response. So Marco, just on that, uh, a lot of people would say, well, okay, sympathetic heart rate goes up, parasympathetic heart rate comes down. Why does heart rate variability do better than heart rate as an indicator of that balance between the two branches of the autonomic system? That's a great question. And I think uh, we always need to uh, motivate the use of a new metric, right? So why would we look at that if we already have resting heart rate? Typically, the reason is that heart rate variability is a bit more sensitive to stress. So if we are interested in this stress response, then the change in resting heart rate typically is much lower, let's say in percentage terms uh, with respect to your regular heart rate. You might have a very small change, maybe 1%, 2%. And in HRV, you might have a change that is much larger, say, I don't know, 5 10%. So that makes it a bit easier to capture this response to stress because it is basically just a more sensitive match. Mm. And typically the change in heart rate, um, if we exclude very large stressors like sickness and, and other things that have a very large impact on our resting physiology, the change in heart rate is so small that it does not... Um, Basically, it remains within the day-to-day variability that we can expect just because there is certain variability in these signals to the point that we cannot really often determine if the change is due to an actual stressor or if it's just day-to-day variability. Mm. So basically, the signal-to-noise ratio ratio is better for for HRV um, in response to stressors typically. Yeah, and that's an important point. So so we'll get on to what these stresses are and give some practical example for people listening. But for example, a a very hard training session done today on a Monday would possibly, not always, but possibly cause resting heart rate to go up by one or 2%. But normally even without that resting heart rate might go up by two or 3%. And so you kind of lose the effect or, or the ability to discern a meaningful change. Whereas heart rate variability, which might change by more, allows you to more, confidently interpret a change as actually having meaning. Would that be accurate? Exactly. Yeah. And so I suppose the next thing is let's dive into exactly what those stressors are and what we can expect them to do for do, heart do rate we, Do we know why your the, 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 you know, lower high, high heart rate variability when you're under stress? In other words, why is the body making – in other words, if I'm understanding this correctly, if, you are, if your body is under stress or, or trying to deal with stress – your heart rate becomes more metronomic. Mm. So why does it do that? Do we know physiologically why that happens? 
well, the, the sympathetic nervous system is proportionally more uh, uh, dominant than the parasympathetic. Right. Yeah. The parasympathetic system is less active. Right. That's probably the bit okay. more accurate way okay. to say it. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's uh, basically the sympathetic response that would trigger anything from um, adrenaline release to sympathetic activity being higher, and then resting heart rate becomes higher, and parasympathetic activity is suppressed, and therefore does not. Um, increase this bit-to-bit variability uh, that we normally capture. So as a concept, before we move on to the specific stressors, would it be accurate to say that heart rate variability is a, is a number that gives us an indication of the, the parasympathetic activity in response to life? <laughs> and that if, if the parasympathetic activity is higher, which is an indication of recovery, adaptation, that we're coping with stress, heart rate variability is also higher. That would that be an appropriate yeah. place to start from? My, or you would you be so so another a, a higher heart rate variability is a healthier position than a lower heart rate variability. Yes, although Marco's got, I think, <laughs> some things to say that it's not it's not necessarily, and this is the mistake that a number of apps have made is if your heart rate variability goes up, they'll say, oh, that's better. It's, it's, a, it's a fingerprint issue. It works within a person, and we must be careful not to just lump it and say up is better. If it stays the same, that's what's healthy. If it gets worse, that's what's unhealthy. With right. the marker, you feel free to add to this, Marco. Yeah, yeah, I would say a lot depends um, where we start as well. So if we start from um, a state in which maybe we are not particularly healthy, uh, either our behavior or some form of uh, health condition, then we could aim at improving also our heart rate variability in the longer run. However, if we already take care of you know, the basics of a healthy lifestyle, then I would say aiming for stability is already a good target because typically there is also a strong genetic component. Mm-hmm. So we might not be able to change it and that might be totally fine. And then the other distinction, um, I would say it's between the acute and the longer term or more chronic change. So as you were saying, Ross, if you have an acute change, a very high HRV on a given day, that might not be a good thing. And maybe we'll talk more about that later. Um, But in the longer run, you might still want to see either a stable or increasing trend. So there are always differences Mm. um, in the immediate response and the longer term response. Uh, We can think about exercise in similar ways, right? We know that with um, endurance exercise, we expect our heart rate at a certain workload to decrease as we get fitter. However, if on a given day, our heart rate is very suppressed, we probably shouldn't be too excited about that. That might be that we are just very fatigued. So similar considerations, I would say, when it comes to physiological responses at rest. Mm, yeah. So does, does that make sense yeah, to you sense as a now, yeah. right. concept? Okay. Is Each person's got like a baseline and a deviation from the baseline is the signal we pay attention to. Right. And if, it, if heart rate variability goes down, that's an indication that that parasympathetic system has been suppressed. Mm. And so therefore we might be struggling with the stress we're under. Right. And that stress comes from various sources. Yeah. Well, let's mm. talk about those sources yeah. then, because let's it's obviously not just athletic, is it? No. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, Mark, yeah. T- take us through these stresses because I think obviously we talk on this podcast, particularly around sports, and that's easy to see where stresses happen. But, you know, when you talk about how heart availability is able to measure does it come down to you know daily work stress, life stress, that sort of thing that can be measured in this way as well? Yeah, I would say this is the um, interesting part about HRV, in my opinion, but it's also the difficult part and why it is sometimes difficult to use it because it is a market that is sensitive to 
basically any stressor because it's just related to activity of the autonomic nervous system, which is going to respond to anything we do. At the same time, it's not specific of anything. So if you see a suppression, then you have no idea what is coming from, where it's coming from, um, unless you have the context, right? So if you know that uh, you did a particular thing, then you can start associating what you did with how your body responded. But it is also why it's so, so difficult to um, interpret the data that you see from someone else. Uh, if you just see physiological data, you can never say, hey, here, this happened or that happened, because again, it is not specific of a particular stressor. It's not necessarily related to training, to sickness, um, or to other stressors that are typically captured. Um, for example, again, alcohol intake or um, even just changes in the menstrual cycle for people that have a regular cycle, those will um, reflect typically quite clearly both in resting heart rate and HRV to a point that it needs to be accounted for. Um, otherwise, you might think that there is a suppression for another reason, any other stressor, while it is simply that, for example, during the luteal phase of the cycle, you have typically a lower HRV. So it's just something that helps you contextualize um, the change that you see. And um, yeah, what else I would say, any, anything that we could do, um, travel again, um, that could stress the body might show up in the data, but it's important to understand also that what you see is the response, right? It's the output of the system, it's not the input. So it's not that you do something that is stressful, let's say a workout, and then you expect HRV is to be suppressed because if you respond well to that stressor, let's say you are a good athlete and you train regularly uh, at that intensity, and it is still a hard session, but you do not expect your body to be uh, in a negative state for a long time because that is what you do and you respond quickly to that type of stressor, even if it is a strong stressor. So the fact that you see the response in there, um, I think is also why we look at this because if it was just about the stressor, okay, you stress the body and then you expect a certain suppression, then knowing what you did, you already know what to expect, but you don't know what to expect because you don't know how to resp you respond to that stressor, which could be positive. And also you don't know how you respond to that stressor today in a specific context in which you have also other stressors, which could be work. It could be other psychological stressors, issues, uh, your family, anything that is stressing you out basically will have an impact which might show up acutely, which is typical of sickness, alcohol, things that have a very strong and short impact, or chronically. Um, again, work and other stressors or health issues, those might take a longer time um, to show up or to go away, and it might impact your physiology chronically. That is typically what we want to avoid, right? That is why we would try to use this data to avoid ending up in a chronic um, negative state. Mm. So for example, and I, I apologize if I'm laboring a point or oversimplifying, but when you travel, particularly east to west and you cross time zones, there would be an expectation that your heart rate variability goes down. Mike, you'd understand and agree. Yes. When you drink too many beers on a Friday night, there's an expectation that on a Saturday morning, it's lowered. And you've actually, Marco, there's an interesting paper you've published comparing the size of those changes and alcohol beats all the others. Is that right? Yeah, true. Yeah, true. I think that's important to note. Uh, if we want to use these tools for training or anything else, 
then we need to check our lifestyle first because otherwise mm. we learn nothing about the stress response uh, as we have confounders that have a much larger um, impact. Uh, I think it was 10, 12% for alcohol with respect to maybe 3, 4% for average training. Mm, so that's a big difference. And then actually on one of Marco's posts on Medium, you've got a really interesting case of uh, lockdown in Spain where remember when we were all stuck in our houses for weeks, heart rate variability dropped in a person during lockdown, even though they weren't training. And that's the emotional psychological stress, pure and simple. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think these are um, really clear cases in which we have a major stressor that is not physical. Uh, and we even remove training stress mm -hmm. because you're not allowed to train. And then you see HRV being suppressed for several weeks. So again, we turn it into even a chronic stress response, negative response. Um, and actually you even see that as soon as the lockdown is over and this athlete can train again, they start training and their HRV goes up again. Mm. So that's, um, I think that's, that's a lot because often we look at these tools just as, um, something very specific in the context of training and we ignore all other stressors. And even in athletes, I think all other stressors typically can take over with respect to training. Mm. And that's why now you can imagine that you've got life, stress, family, travel, alcohol, training, lack of sleep, change of weather, all happening at the same time. And you're measuring one thing that assimilates all of them. And that's why you have to be really attentive to how you respond over time. Mm. Yeah, that's the key. So, Marco, I mean, the interesting thing now is that obviously this is a fairly relatively new area. And what you're suggesting is that if we're going to really tackle the the, the effect of stresses, whether it's lifestyle or training exercises, that potentially down the road, the best way to measure this is going to be HIV. How close are we in your estimation, given the fact that you've been involved in some of the technology here, to creating devices which are really very good at measuring HRV as opposed to just heart rate? I think uh, right now we are at a good stage. Uh, and this wasn't the, the same even just a few years ago. I think in the past five years, maybe, there has been a lot of progress in building tools that are accurate, um, but also measure at the right time. I think this is also important. Mm. These are two aspects uh, you know, because we talk about, okay, HRV is a proxy to the autonomic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system in particular. But this is also why when we measure is very important because during the day, all sorts of things are happening all the time, right? Uh, now I'm talking and maybe before I was eating and then if you drink coffee, maybe you had a coffee. All those things impact your physiology uh, for a transitory period. And that is not what we care about, right? That is, physiology is very dynamic during the day and we don't want to capture these changes that do not have then an impact uh, in what I would call your baseline physiology. Mm. We wanna, that's what you want to capture. Your baseline physiology is how you responded to more or less everything you've done in the past few days um, or longer if we have some chronic response. But we don't want to get stuck into anything, all these minor things that happen during the day, which are required for us to function properly and might not have any negative impact, even though 
uh, my HRV might be zero if I'm exercising and you know and my heart rate is high. So that is perfectly normal. We should not worry about that. That is why it is important to have uh, a proper routine for measurements. And there are now different devices that you can use either to measure first thing in the morning or during the night. Both of these um, times, I would say, are valid to measure your baseline physiology. In one case, you are sleeping and you measure for several hours while you are asleep. It is important there that you do get a device that uses all of this data or almost all of the night, not just a few data points, because that would fall again into the same issues that we have during the day. Even if you are asleep and unconscious, your autonomic nervous system is very active. That is actually the whole principle behind trying to estimate sleep stages from autonomic activity is because during REM sleep and deep sleep, it's very different. Um, and these variations, if you just capture one data point during the night, like some devices do, for example, the Apple Watch, then this data point could be one day very high and one day very low just because it was in a different sleep stage. But at a different time, there is also a circadian rhythm. So your resting heart rate going down through the night, your HIV going up a bit. So all of these things happen in a way that can easily confound uh, the data you're capturing, while if you use the entire night, basically you average out all of these issues and you get a good estimate. And similarly, if you measure as soon as you wake up, before you exercise, eat, and do all sorts of other things, that is also a reliable data point. So we have now devices able to do that. Um, yep. Sorry, Michael, for interrupting your flow there. I just wanted to ask, how does a user know which device does that? Because yeah. I wouldn't know, like if I was evaluating the half a dozen products on the market and you've listed one, the Apple Watch. Okay, we can exclude that. Of the other five or six, how do I know that my device is measuring it over the five or six hours necessary as opposed to the 10 minutes that might mislead me? Yeah, there is a major pain because it can also change for the same device over time, right? So um, just to make another example, until... Last year, the VOOP band would also provide you just with five minutes of data that were captured um, according to, well, they were trying to basically give you five minutes captured during the last um, deep sleep segment. Now, these devices cannot estimate sleep stages accurately enough. That means that often you would get that wrong and you would be in another sleep stage. And additionally, that moment. Every night is at a different hour. It could be once at 1 a.m. It could be once at 4 a.m. So again, circadian rhythm could find it again. Mm. Now this added extra noise in the data. So then they changed it to something that now is using the all night of data. And indeed, it is much better. Now it is very similar to what you get, for example, with an ordering. Um, the two are actually extremely similar. There is uh, an absolute difference, but in terms of relative changes over time, you get almost a perfect match since this year. So these devices are getting more consistent, which I think is a good thing, but it took some time also to them to experiment with different methods that maybe they generally thought was better, but eventually it figured, okay, it's not, so let's make something a bit different. So as a consumer, you need to find out, <laughs> typically asking them, hey, the number you report to me, how is this calculated? Mm. Uh, and for example, Polar reports data co computed um, 
over four hours. So they use, I think, the first four hours of the night and then average that and give that to you. The others now use the full night. Um, I think Garmin, now that has released it in a few models of their watches, also uses the full night, uh, but possibly a different feature, but still, um, I would say, very similar data at this point. So it's getting to a point where we are also more consistent with respect to before, um, which is a good thing. And the data collected with PPG, so with optical methods, is not the same as the data collected with a strap or with electrical activity of the heart, but it is very similar. So um, even when you compare it to an ECG, typically, especially in relative terms over time, you see also the same changes. So I think we are at a point where many of these devices can be trusted under certain circumstances, because we also know that these methods are very prone to artifacts, in particular, the, the optical sensors. If there is movement, there might be a lot of noise in the data. Uh, if we have any sort of cardiac issues, that is important always to remember that we cannot use these devices reliably. If we have an arrhythmia, even something that is not uh, a health concern, premature ventricular contractions are um, very prevalent in the population. Right? There is, I think, between 40 and 75% of people uh, have PVCs, premature ventricular contractions, when monitored with a halter monitor for 48 hours. So that is pretty much everyone. So depending on how many you have, you might be able to use these devices or not. So I think we always need to um, yeah, improve in this, especially in these aspects of detecting if the data that you're using is accurate or if it is not, and we are not there yet. So now the devices are good under certain circumstances. When they are not good, we are completely unaware because the user is never informed of issues of signal quality and things like that. So that's hopefully um, something that is going to come sometime soon. Mm. So when you're looking at your, for instance, I've got a Polar. So when it's talking about heart rate availability, that's not, I get a sleep score in the morning. Is that using some data from the heart rate variability and also the, the, the your deep sleep in it. And I know you've been very involved in the development of the aura ring yourself. Does that give you the same, is that the only way you're measuring heart rate variability is when you sleep at night or is there ways of measuring that during the day or is nighttime the only time you can accurately measure that stressor? So when these devices measure normally automatically, they would measure HRV only in the night uh, because during the day, the data is very noisy, mm -hmm. but even if the data was high quality and you had actually an ECG, I would still say that it is typically not useful unless you're looking for something very specific. Say you want to look at um, your HRV after a workout. So you have your workout and then after you look at what happens and the change in parasympathetic activity. So you're basically locking your measurement to a specific event and then it can be useful. But in general, I would say the night is still the ideal moment and your polar and all these devices, yes, they will mostly use HRV and movement and maybe if they have temperature and other signals as well to try to capture how these signals change with respect to sleep stages and estimate them. Um, the accuracy of this is not great for various reasons, um, starting from the reference not being great, meaning that um, the reference for sleep staging is experts uh, annotating the data and agreeing on a specific sleep stage, maybe 80, 85% of the time. 
So you already start from something that is not great and then you try to estimate it. So there are always errors in there. Typically, my recommendation is to focus on the actual physiology and the heart rate and the HRV as opposed to uh, stages and scores and things that are that are built on top where basically the errors accumulate. So it's a case of actually looking because I know on my on my monitor, I can look and see and look at my sleep data and look at it, but I never do. And maybe when I do that, I can actually look at some of these numbers now with a bit more, with a bit more interest. Although, because I've also got a Polar and I've been using the Polar and Marco's HRV for training. Mm. Just on the Polar, it gives you two, it breaks your sleep into two scores. The yes. one is your, uh, I forget ANS. what it's called, ANS response. And the other one's your yeah. sleep quality. Yeah. I think the sleep quality is where the error gets larger. And the ANS is what it's measuring as HRV. And as we've discovered, that's subject to errors because of, so it's almost like a circular thing that they create. But the, when, when these devices tell you how often you spend in deep sleep and light sleep and REM sleep, that's where they start making, I think, pretty big guesses. Mm. So that, that part of what Polar measures is less accurate than the HRV, which in itself might not be the most accurate because of the, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Would that be accurate? I mean, like, how far are we, in, incidentally, from being able to measure sleep accurately using wearables? A decade, two? I think we need the um, brainwaves yeah. if we want to do it accurately. Yeah. yeah, because changes in, autonom- in autonomic nervous system activity are related, uh, but the way sleep stages are defined is based on brainwaves. And you could actually question that. Uh, is that the proper way to do it? Or maybe other changes uh, in autonomic activity might be informative about what happens in sleep. I think this is also something that was um, established a long time ago. And, you know, these things are difficult then to challenge or change. And this a sleep epoch, when we annotate sleep stages to estimate them, is 30 seconds because that's what you could print. It was a piece of paper <laughs> where you could fit 30 seconds of EEG. And this is what we use today. And it's not meaningful to use it as 30 seconds, but it will always stay that way probably. So there are things we do in terms of sleep staging that I think are mm-hmm. yeah, due to historical and legacy reasons um, that make it difficult. Um, it, I think at the same time that it's, um, it's challenging with the signals that we have. Um, even if you think about deep sleep, uh, we are looking at the amplitude of certain waves and the reason why people, older people get less deep sleep is that these waves are a bit smaller, but maybe the threshold that we use is not ideal. And that is also a threshold that has been used since ever. So um, I think it's a very difficult topic to, um, yeah, the tackle and maybe trying to estimate stages is just not the best way to go for wearables. Um, when you when you wear many and you see that some signals are in line and others are all over the place, I think that that's something mm. about what can be done reliably and what maybe we shouldn't spend too much time looking at, at least as consumers. Yeah, yeah. And so back to heart rate variability, the principle is, but if you are going to measure it, you want to standardize the measurement as much as possible. And that means as per your, your device, it's a measurement when waking in the morning before life comes at you too fast. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So as soon as you wake up or a few minutes later, totally fine. If you need to go to the bathroom, uh, that is also fine. Same body position, uh, lying down or sitting, um, 
both are good typically for people that have a very low heart rate maybe sitting is better adding that little stress of a different body position might provide you slightly uh, better data otherwise just lying down breathing naturally so no deep breaths or anything like that just your regular breathing rate a minute or two typically is sufficient uh, with our system you can use the phone camera you don't need any sensor otherwise you can use a chest strap polar straps are very good garmin straps are also good for this um, as an alternative to this morning routine you have the wearables for the night both cases as you said standardized measurement it's every day more or less the same typical um, hour um, typical procedure the same procedure and that's how you start collecting some data mm. so i mean you touched a little bit on you know the, the, the long-term studies around sleep but where do you see this technology itself going is it is it likely to be implemented in existing wearables or do you think there are new devices that are only going to measure that and that's what people will wear continually I think in terms of HRV, it's just going to be one of the signals that are part of most devices like we see today, as it is now, I would say, rather simple um, for many reasons, right? One is that historically HRV can, has been quantified in maybe 50, 60 different ways, right? We said that HRV is this variation between beats, but then when you have some data, a few minutes, you can quantify this in many different ways in terms of the math. And that is also why there has been a lot of confusion um, in, in the research and the tools that have been developed because everybody was reporting different metrics and um, that didn't help much understanding or sort of comparing studies or comparing tools and things like that. Now, pretty much everyone uses the same metric which is simple to compute and reliable also when captured with optical methods or with PPG and the technology that wearables and apps typically use. So that helped a lot in getting this data um, more consistently. And I think the, the wearables and apps themselves are in fact helping a lot now the research because before we often did something that I don't think is very meaningful in the context of HRV, which is get some people to the lab, take a measurement, and then maybe do a study of weeks or months, and then get them again and take another measurement. So you have two data points, and you try to derive conclusions for a parameter that changes so much on a day-to-day -day basis and for so many reasons, even just seasonality. So it was just another time of the year, and maybe that explains why you see a difference. Um, while measuring daily with these sensors allows us to capture much higher resolution in, in what happens in response to different stressors in real life, not in the lab. Um, similarly, in the study we briefly mentioned earlier that we published, we had, uh, I think, 9 million measurements for almost 30,000 people for five years. So that's a lot of different situations in which um, people report different stressors and the response is not always the same, but when you look at the same stressor for the same person over a very long period of time, then you see quite consistent outcomes. Uh, and that allows you to see, okay, what is the impact on resting physiology of, um, again, alcohol or sickness, for example, and how does that change if you are 20 years old or if you are 60 years old? Mm. So the, all these kind of things, I think, are now easier to study because of the technology that is becoming more accurate. 
and is deployed to a much broader uh, user base. Mm. So in terms of in terms of the person listening to this and saying, you know what, okay, I'm sold on the idea that I'm going to measure heart rate variability because I appreciate that it might be one of the most sensitive markers of stress and adaptation. I'm going to change my training in response to it. I think it's really important that they, and, and you've advised this as well, and I think it's true, I've advised the same, is you spend a month just learning. You observe, you notice, you document. To do, to do that effectively, you have to document certain subjective and perceptual things, the things that give context. Now, in your app, there's a set of five or six questions. Maybe very briefly, we can just advise people on what are the things that if, you, if you're not using your app, for instance, what are the things I should keep a diary of to try and understand a bit better what's happening with heart rate variability? Yeah, I think um, anything that is useful context for your specific case. So um, if you travel, um, drink, if you're sick, um, your cycle, and then subjectively, um, that could be helpful also to see later if there are strong correlations between, for example, how you perceive your work stress and other stressors that are maybe not easily quantifiable mm. um, that, that are happening. And then anything related to how you feel you've slept, um, mm. your training, if you're an athlete or someone that trains. So typically apps would have some sort of questionnaire that allows you to annotate these things easily. Um, I think that's that's very important because it allows you to gather the required context, mm. both to understand as you collect it, but also retrospectively. If you go and look at your past data, then it is much easier to understand what was happening with respect to just having the data and then no context around it. That will make it very hard to you know, to figure out what, what was happening in there. Yeah, so I mean, the, the point is you have to almost be a detective and a good detective is making notes of everything. So at a minimum, how, out of 10, how did you sleep? Out of 10, how recovered are you from the day before training? How stressed are you about life? How motivated are you to train? How much did you drink? How much have you traveled? That sort of stuff, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Out of interest, Marco, because I've been using the app for like a month now, and the way that it works on Marco's app, the HRV for training, is you do the, the HRV measurement, which takes a minute to do, and then it pulls up a number, and I now know that my number is normally between six and a half, seven and a half. And then I do the subjective questionnaire have you ever thought to swap the order around and make the person do the subject to first and then the hrv because i know what the hrv means and it definitely biases my subject to feedback and i wonder what would happen yeah, if yeah. half the people did it in the other order yeah yeah for sure so we have actually an option to not see the hrv ah, okay. until you answer the question so right. um yeah normally i say okay enable that so that you're not okay. um influenced by it yeah. but because otherwise for sure when you see where you stand then you're like oh okay then i don't feel good or i feel yeah. good and that is not the point yeah. so yeah. uh we should yeah we should always i think fill in the questionnaire and then um look at the data afterwards right and you, you actually brought up a a point that I think we, sh we should stress a little, which is this of the individual normal range that you mentioned yours in the app. Yeah. Um, we said HIV changes a lot um, on a day-to-day -day basis in response to different stressors. Most of the tools out there are getting better, but I think here is where maybe they struggle a little. So the way the data is reported or interpreted typically is just the number. There isn't much context around it. It doesn't say, okay, this is your HIV today and normally you are 
in this range. So today it is a bit lower or it is a bit higher or it is within your range, which is typically what we want to see or what we expect if there are not very large stressors. So uh, that's what we try to do uh, in our tool, but I think more tools slowly will also get there because that is the only meaningful way to interpret these physiological changes. Otherwise, if we are just a bit lower than yesterday, it is only normal for people to think that lower is worse. Mm. And that is typically not the case if you're still within your normal range. Right, right. And then a last question from me, and I hope that this doesn't throw a curveball to people is, We've spoken now in this interview that when your heart rate variability is suppressed, it's an indication of stress that you're not adapting to. Your app also, if my heart rate variability gets too high from one day to the next, it's also warning me against training too much. What's the physiology behind very, very high or large increases being a signal that we need to maybe pay attention to? Do you know? Yeah, so um, I would say that there's a... something I can only speculate about. So the approach I take here, we take here is the following. Anything that physiologically speaking is abnormal, then should be taken with caution. So we know that suppression means that parasympathetic activity is lower because stress is high, but for um, an abnormally high value, we could think that there is, um, for example, very high parasympathetic activity, but not because we are particularly arrested, but we are because the parasympathetic nervous system is particularly active to try to recover, for example, from a large stressor. So it is a slightly different situation in which there is very large activity because of what is happening in terms of the recovery process and not because we have already... Uh, basically been through that and achieved, let's say, higher readiness. Um, At the same time, I think, again, this is more speculative than anything because it is difficult to have a reference for these kind of things. Um, But we could think, uh, something I I bring up often is think about other physiological signals, for example, blood pressure, Uh, too low is not good, too high is not good. We know we have a range where we typically try to stand. And I think, for many physiological signals, we have a similar um, similar story. Same for glucose, right? We have some optimal range in which we want to try to be. Uh, and HIV has been overly simplified a lot in the past, meaning higher is better always, but that is not really the case, I think. That's what we try to uh, represent with this uh, normal range and uh, abnormal changes. All right, interesting. And thanks so much for your time. It's been uh, fascinating. And I thought what we're going to do is make sure that we put all your contact details, particularly for your app, onto the uh, onto the show notes so that everybody knows uh, what we're talking about and we can give them some more information. But uh, thanks so much for your time, Marco. And uh, best of luck with all your entrepreneurial areas because it certainly is a fascinating <laughs> field, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Thank you so much. Thanks very, thanks very much. So that was Marco Altini. And of course, the question is, when you talked about this HRV stuff, is how can you measure this stuff? We talked about an, an app that he's developed. And mm. uh, Ross, you've been on this app for a while. HRV4, the number four training is the app name. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've said it's absolutely been amazing, little app. Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, like we spoke in the podcast with him, you and I both have polar. And so yeah. I started, I remember a couple of years ago, I was measuring sleep 
through the night with polo and then I stopped because I was starting to get obsessive about it. <laughs> um, but I started again like two months ago because I was going to do that half tour thing. Never happened, but I was still I was going to do it and, and gather data. But then I came across Marco on Twitter and his his app and I downloaded it and it, it, it really is great. You basically wake up in the morning and then using your phone's camera and light, it measures your heart rate and your heart rate variability on your finger. So basically all you do is you activate the measurements and then you cover your phone's camera and flashlight with your finger. <laughs> and I showed I showed Mike what it looks it's like. Just, it's cool. It's amazing. And he's, he's got data. You can go on his um, Medium page and so on on validating that method compared to the others that measure it with a chest strap. And it performs very well. And so my routine is when I wake up, as soon as the disappointment has hit me that I'm awake, <laughs> um, and I realize I have to get out of bed, I basically give myself one minute, I measure heart rate variability, and then I complete his little subjective questionnaire, which asks me how I slept, what I trained last night, how energized do I feel, motivated to train, muscle soreness, life routine, have I traveled, did I have any alcohol? And then it assimilates all that into advice. And basically, if you're and this is what he was explaining. If your heart rate variability is within the normal range for me, now mine is different from yours, it's different mm. from Bob's, it's different from John's. But if mine is within normal range and my subjective assessments are normal, then it will tell me proceed as planned. Right. So there's still an assumption that I've got a plan in mind. You know, today was going to be a long, easy ride. Today was going to be a talk interval session. So it's telling me go ahead. If for whatever reason my heart rate variability is lower, because of travel, illness, stress, hard training the day or the week before, uh, change in the weather, whatever, then it will advise that I limit intensity or take it easy because that's lower. Mm. If my subjective scores are worse, more muscle soreness, inferior sleep, uh, less motivated to train, less energized, it will also advise that I proceed with some caution or limit intensity. So it assimilates all that into some advice. Of course, you don't have to follow this, but that's that's what it does. And it, so basically what he's done is he's developed the concept that heart rate variability is the physiological metric that captures how well I'm dealing with stress. I then contextualize it with subjective and together I can make decisions based on those two metrics. Yeah. Now you could do the same with polar. You, you, we mentioned polar gives you an autonomic nervous system score, heart rate variability, which is a different number to his because they've worked out their own conversion of maths and stats to a number. Mm. Heart rate polar gives you the same thing, and if you track it from one day and one week to the next, you could make the same decisions. But just be a detective and keep a diary of the subjective stuff and that measurement, so that you can make those decisions reliably and with some confidence that you're not reacting to a bad measurement yeah that makes sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah so that's available i mean you oh, go to the fantastic. app store and download it it's a one-source fee and i, I think yeah, it's, it's one of the cheaper apps out there and it really is absolutely fantastic so <coughs> i mean it's got once you've once you've accumulated because see marco knows he understands the the value of a depth of data you you, you don't you don't want to make decisions until you've got solid data as a foundation so He's, for instance, said that by the time you've got 30 training sessions documented, and it links, by the way, to Strava, so it knows how far I cycled mm. the day before and ran or whatever it is. Um, it, 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 um, what was I saying? I've lost my train of thought. Um, Talking about links to know, the various platforms. So over time, over time, it becomes, in theory, smarter, mm. and it allows you to draw correlations between the nights that you slept better or worse and your training 
quantities, chronic and acute, acute training loads, between heart rate variability and training, between heart rate variability and heart rate. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can explore beyond that. And the value is in the process, as always. Yeah, yeah really, it's really good. Yeah, absolutely awesome. Really good. I suppose it just takes the it, it takes the guesswork out of stuff. But as you said, very uh, importantly, it's important to establish what your own baseline is, mm. and to use some common sense when working out what those numbers mean. Right, they don't always mean the same for different and, people. And that's yeah. where we we started the interview with market pointing out that there was this divergence, and people over applied the number without necessarily quality controlling how that number was measured, when it was measured, and what it actually meant. Um, and, and I think there are still apps that do that. So, for instance, a number of these apps will give you a readiness to train score or a recovery score. And what they're doing is they're taking sleep, which, as we've discovered, isn't really possible to measure that accurately. They're taking heart rate variability. They're taking training load. They're taking other metrics, potential subjective. And they're, they're trying to, with good intention, give you a score to say you're ready to train. Mm. What he's saying is that there's only one thing that determines that, and it's your physiological response to this training stress and other life stress. And then we'll interpret it in the context of subjective. And I think that's, for me, that's the robust way to do it with more integrity than what others have done. Mm. And so that's, and again, I mean, I'll, I'll post the four articles he wrote, like a, a call it a crash course in heart rate variability. And article three is just a series of case studies. And you'll see menstrual function. An injury to an athlete causes heart rate variability to go down. Mm. Oh. Because of the stress of not being able to train. So even though you're not stressed physically anymore. You're stressed emotionally. And, and it, it yeah. shows up. COVID lockdown, as I mentioned in the interview, um, a race. Tra- you can see it there. You'll learn everything you need to know, and then you'll be smarter for it. Oh, I'm smarter for listening to him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really, it is. I mean, I say this, we've said it before. You speak to someone who you just know, knows everything about one thing. Yeah. Except also what he doesn't know about one thing it's just that's a that's a privilege i'm glad so yeah thanks marco thanks marco yeah so i mean let's let's talk a little bit more about how heart rate i mean one of the interesting things that we always talk about on rides and any kind of athletics performance that we do is how heart rate responds to exercise and Mm. also how the heart rate responds when you're tired and fatigued and that Mm. sort of thing but let's let's talk about exercise heart rate drift yeah just, just what, what, what is that and, and why does it happen? So I go out, let's say, and I'm going to run for 45 minutes and I'm going to run at a comfortable pace and it's going to be the same pace the whole time. Heart rate will not be the same across 45 minutes. It will gradually creep up over time, even at the same exercise intensity. And so if you don't allow for that and you say, I'm going to run at a heart rate of 155, you will get slower and slower and slower as the run goes on. <laughs> Right. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. Because your heart rate's trending up. Even if you're at at your peak of your fitness. Yeah, of course. If you are an elite athlete and you're doing an easy run, you are far better physiologically at handling the stress of that easy run. Mm. And so, therefore, your heart rate will be much flatter. Mm. If you go slightly harder, the drift is going to be pronounced. And if you go for four hours instead of 45 minutes, it's going to be more pronounced. And it's just because of fatigue. Not necessarily fatigue. I mean, fatigue is, is potentially a coincident outcome, a parallel thing that's happening. But in this case, it's partly dehydration. As I sweat, my blood plasma volume literally drops. And it's been shown in controlled studies that for every 1% drop in body weight, heart rate will be between 5 and 7 beats higher. So by the time a 80-kilogram athlete has lost 1 kilogram, which is 
okay, it's a little over 1%, their heart rate might be seven beats higher than it was at the start hmm. when they were not. The other thing that drives it up is body temperature. It's been shown even controlling for weight loss as I get hotter and hotter, my heart rate goes up because the temperature has a direct effect on the, on the electrical activity of the heart. And then the third thing is the hormonal situation changes. The stress, and this is why if I run faster, the drift is greater. If I go out and run it or cycle at 80% of max for an hour, that's a really hard effort by the end. By the end, the hormonal situation is quite different to the start. I've got more adrenaline or, mm -hmm. or sympathetic activity, if you want to talk newer, than I did at the beginning. And so my heart rate is higher as a consequence. Do those, so yeah. it's a collection of the physiological changes, the hydration, the body temperature, the hormones that causes heart rate to go up. But it, it must plateau at some point because if you're doing an endurance sport, I suppose you don't plateau, you just get slower. Yes, you'd either slow down or you'd stop, yeah. <laughs> depending on the intensity. And, and again, two podcasts back, we did a Caught My Eye special with our patrons. And one of the questions there was on heart rate zones. And we discussed there, mm. zone one is what you call moderate exercise. You can handle that. It'll plateau. And, but again, as we go on and on and on, we get progressively more dehydrated. We lose more volume, our body temperature. But if it's an hour long, it will plateau. For a fit athlete doing moderate exercise, it will plateau and it won't drift up within reason. Moment we get into what we call like zone two for heavy and zone three for severe, there's no there's no plateau because by definition we're in that phase where we we don't achieve balance. Mm. Uh, I suppose in zone two we we do, but it's not permanent. <laughs> mm. By zone three, it, we never balanced. It's, it's severe. Yeah. So, moral of the story is. If you go out, particularly on a warm day, and you're going to do anything like vaguely challenging exercise-wise, and you say, I'm going to keep my heart rate in zone three, you will struggle to do that at the end compared to the beginning. And you just have at to the accept same speed at the or, same intensity yeah, or power. Yeah, yeah, right. You might well struggle to stay in that zone, mm. heart rate zone, if that's how you're working. And mm. so just, just accept that. Allow for slight drift upwards. Don't panic. Don't slow down when you don't need to. That's normal mm. physiology. Now, one of the conundrums about heart rate monitor, uh, heart rate, I find quite fascinating, is that the more tired you are, mm. the less light you you can't get your heart rate up. Yeah. So, for instance, if I've had a couple a couple of days or a week or so of hard riding, you think, well, I'm fatigued, therefore my heart rate, my heart would have to work harder to achieve the same right. work. Right. But in fact, it's it's you you can actually just never get the heart rate up. It seems like you almost like have no, you can't rev. Mm, exactly in simple terms that's exactly what it is and last year when i did that half tour that's what i noticed like 10 days in i was riding the same speed as i was on day one and my heart rate was five beats lower mm. by the time i finished i'm 10 beats lower. i just could not get the heart rate higher mm. and it's not because my efforts down it's because my nervous system the, the factor that controls the heart rate is just flat <laughs> it's, it's, it's the same thing it's that parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous system. And there comes a point at which our capacity to respond to stress is just dampened. Mm. And we can't get the sympathetic activation that we require. And possibly we have a parasympathetic response to stress that just wants us to not <laughs> lift the heart rate. It wants us to actually right. back right off. You know, that's what Marco was, I guess, alluding to at the end there. And so, yeah, we. The, the, I guess the important principle is that the the heart doesn't drive exercise. It's a consequence of other factors related to exercise. And one of those like the is the neural system. Yeah. The neural system. Yeah. So I, I dare say many people would have been led down exactly the wrong path by that. Because the classic thinking might have been that if you're adapting well to training, your heart rate will be lower. 
So when you start out and you ride at 200 watts or your normal comfortable pace, your heart rate's 155. Mm. After three or four months, you would expect your heart rate to be 145 because that's what fitness is. It's a, it's a reduction in cardiac, cardio stress, <laughs> physiological stress at the same workload, yeah? Yeah. And so now people will go out when they're acutely fatigued and they'll see the same reduction and say, this is going well. Mm. Actually, no, it's exactly the opposite. And that's why you have to always understand that heart rate is one of two or three things that you should be paying attention to. Mm. And if your, if your RPE has gone up and your heart rate is lower, that's a warning sign. Mm. Because what should happen is that your RPE and your heart rate should track one another down. Mm. But if your RPE goes up because your legs are just aching and tired and you just feel like you're permanently at eight out of 10, you can't go to nine. Mm. You're at eight out of 10, you used to be six and your heart rate's lower. That's actually a sign to back off, not mm. go harder. Mm. Yeah. And I suppose that's always the temptation to push through those hard phases when in fact you're not doing any benefit to your body. You're actually just making yourself more tired. Especially if yeah. you've picked up yeah. somewhere that lower heart rate is a sign of progress. Yeah. You know, social media, some guys tweeted and in 140 characters cannot capture this physiological <laughs> complexity. And now you make mm. exactly the wrong decision because you didn't understand context. Yeah. So always it's 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 three things. It's subjective RPE. It's your objective heart rate. How am I responding? Or heart rate variability, now that we've introduced you to that concept. And then the third thing is what am I doing? What's my output, my power output, my running speed? Mm. Those three things together tell you the story, not one alone. Now, also interesting is that your heart rate is different depending on the sports that you do. So mm. what I've read is that if you're a runner, your heart rate will be higher. You can get a potentially a higher heart rate when you're a runner compared to when you're a cyclist. Yeah, yeah, and that's Why? because because you engage more muscle mass. And so the so he has the heart can only reach a certain capacity. So you're saying you can't push it hard enough. Well, that's the, that's riding. one of the big debates in exercise sciences mm. is when we when we reach fatigue, are we limited by cardiac output? And remember, cardiac output is heart rate and stroke volume. It's the product of those two things. And there are studies, for instance, that will make people cycle to fatigue. And at the moment, they're about to stop, put arm exercise on top of it. And sure enough, they can get their cardiac output a little bit higher. No, and okay. so you fail, you fail sometimes in the presence of a cardiac reserve. Mm. And it's the sports that engage the heart, so not the heart, sports that engage the muscle mass the most that actually then drive that the highest because that's the, that's the activity that sets the highest cardiac output. So running must and be so one of the highest, I'd imagine. Or running's high, cross-country cross -country skiing. skiing is high, yeah. yeah. Whereas swimming, not only for that reason, but because you're also supported by the water and there's hydrostatic pressure on the body, it tends to have slightly lower heart rates than. Mm. But it's, it's, it's tricky this because if you, again, if you put a cyclist on a treadmill, heart rate might be sky high, mm. right? Because he's not used to that stimuli. Right, if you put mm. a runner on a bike, heart rate might be really high or it might be really low because he lacks the leg strength to get to the workloads that would cause the high heart rate. Remember the legs drive mm. the heart, not the other way around. And so someone who's got fairly weak muscles from, because again, running is, running is pogo stick <laughs> yeah. and cycling is pushing, right? Mm. Um, Running doesn't involve the same pushing motion as cycling does. And so a lot of times a runner on a bike will have a submax heart rate because not because they're using less muscle, but just because they don't have the strength to get to the 380 watts that was required to get the max heart rate. <laughs> mm. So again, it's always it's always contextual and, and So if you if you're a multidisciplinary athlete, like a, a triathlete, for instance, ideally what you should be doing is defining what your height what your 
top part rate is Context. for cycling and running Correct. potentially Context and then working specific. on those two basics yeah. yeah exactly which i suppose in lots of the devices that you get these days you can actually set different zones for the different sports that you participate in yeah, yeah. exactly but any advice as to how you get that maximum heart rate have you have you have you ever come across a workout that goes okay this is how you this is how you max your heart rate i mean mm. it sounds easy but it's not that easy you can't just go out and ride and see how high you can get there's, right. there's and, some ways of doing it yeah and there's a trade-off between length and intensity um because it, it can't be so long because then you don't go hard enough yeah so if you say i'm going to go 30 minutes that might be too long you might have been better off at 15 minutes mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you go too short and you do intervals, for instance, 400 meters, the one minute 10, one minute 30, whatever it takes, you might not be long enough. So from my experience, the best session for someone who's moderately fit is like a 5K time trial. If you pace it well and you run a good hard 4K and then you pin your ears back for the last K and you go max, 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 you will get really close to your max heart rate there. Or you do an interval session where the intervals last two and a half to four minutes. Mm. So for most people, that would be 800 meters to a kilometer. Sometimes if you're really good, maybe 1,200 meters on a track, three laps. And you would want to probably do between six and eight of them. And again, you want to build the intensity so that you finish with a maximum effort. Mm. And whatever you hit there is probably very close. But again, if if you are training well and you are regularly challenging yourself in training you don't really need to go out and test it specifically because at some point in your training you'll get it you'll be riding with mates and everyone will be at the bottom of a 2k climb and someone will get carried away and you'll be sucked into a you know the you know the situation right (laughs) and you will hit your max there so if you if you do document your training and i'm sure many of you listening to this do that whatever's your highest in the last sort of six months on Strava, Garmin, Polar, whatever you use, is probably pretty close to your max. You'd know if you were you'd know if you were maxing at that point or not. Obviously mm-hmm. if you're a recreational half marathoner, you do three or four a year and all you're interested in finishing is is in finishing, then you wouldn't hit a high heart rate in training, but why would you bother? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't be worried about that anyways. So yeah. 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 Then, well, then, Any other interesting things around heart rate? Well, the racing it, it, thing, and I mean, like, let's thing. maybe we bookend this by coming back to the question that inspired it, and that was Gary's question yeah. around Pogacar. There are there are a few studies that have looked at heart rate during racing. Now, let me ask you this: now that you're an expert in this, is what what do you think the difference is in heart rate from racing to training? Well, I can tell you a story that may maybe contextualise it, but I, I do think that. We've often advised, and people have come to us at Runners World to talk about whether they should race with a heart monitor versus training and racing. And uh, there's a great story about a, a very well-known South African runner in the early 90s. In the early days of heart rate monitor training, he was training very strictly on heart rate monitor. Um, in the zones, you know, everything was scientific. Got to the start of the Comrades Marathon, which is a 56-mile, 90-kilometer race over lots of running hills. And... As a result of his heart rate monitor training, um, he took it too slowly in the first three quarters of the race, had an amazing last eight kilometers, but wasn't mm. able to pick up and actually eventually lost the race to Alberto Salazar, um, that guy by the name of Nick Bester. And what it does show you is that... And sorry, Mike, he said in the interview at the end. He said in the interview... I remember that. I was like 11, mm. 10 or 11 years old. And I, for some reason, I can still remember that interview. He said, yeah. 
my heart rate monitor was telling me not to go faster. Yeah. 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 And that was a prime example. And I think I learned a lot of lessons from that because at that time I was very into heart rate monitor training as a triathlete. And that showed me that sometimes when you're in a racing situation, there you almost have to throw out the, the heart rate monitor rule book because the stimulus of racing is very different from the stimulus of training. And therefore, I've always said to people, unless you're doing endurance events like maybe Ironman or even you know even those events at the top top level many triathletes at that top level don't wear heart rate monitors because they want to race mm. and racing is different and they can be held back by their heart monitor so the difference between racing and training i think it's a huge difference it is no you're right you're right <laughs> i think it's 25 30% difference that you can get in a race situation in terms of improvement over a, ra- a training situation it's it's big it's yeah. big and there have been a couple of studies on this where maybe a case study or maybe a handful of athletes have allowed researchers to track them over the course of training and then every month or two they run a race a 10k or a 21 and normally what you would find is a is a very tight relationship between pace and heart rate so in these guys these were good runners for instance in one study if they're running 330 a k the heart rate will be 155 to 160. in a race situation 170 to 175 at the same pace if they're running three minutes a k in training heart rate maybe 170 in a race 185 at three minutes a k and so you're right the heart rate in a race is significantly higher than in a training session at the same pace and that's because in a race situation you are stressed Mm. and stress as we've now discovered affects many aspects of cardiovascular function one of them is heart rate another is heart rate variability and so it's a classic mistake to make is to say i've learned over six months that if i'm going to run this half marathon in my best time, I'm going to run at this heart rate. I promise you, you will start too slowly mm-hmm. because you will force yourself into a pace that is considerably lower to keep the heart rate down than you should be given the addition of race stress factors. Right. Makes sense, right? Yeah. And that's why, in response to Gary, I'm not that stunned that Pogaccia doesn't wear it. I'm still. A little bit surprised that they wouldn't want to at least document it mm. in the in the race and look at it afterwards. But the idea of looking at it in a race and knowing it, I would imagine a lot of athletes might say, you know what, I'm not interested. Because in a race, let's say, I mean, I'll speak for myself now. If I'm, if I'm going as hard as I can and I get to like 190, I know that's a really hard effort. If I see that in a race, I, I don't want to know. No. Because I'm, then I'll psych myself out and I'll force myself to slow down <laughs> when actually I shouldn't. So sometimes ignorance is better. And so it might be, and again, we're speculating because we didn't want to run the gauntlet of public relations to ask about this. It might be that Pogaccia, they're so familiar with his power output numbers and his efforts and what he's capable of that heart rate is surplus to requirements in a race situation and might be even more misleading than not measuring it. Does that yeah. sort of make sense? So they know our guy can do 6.2 watts a kilo for 30 minutes, whatever it is, and it doesn't matter whether his heart rate's 175 or 192. We know that's what the demand of the race is. We're not interested in the thing that might be misleading. Yeah. And that's that's really important for people to bear that in mind. So, And by the way, on Patreon, one of the other perks of signing up is you get access to our, our posts. And someone called Gerald and Gary were involved in a discussion on this, very lively debate and discussion about that. So you can read more about that there. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, as a as a sort of addition to that, I remember talking to a well-known South African Ironman triathlete, James Kunama, who's recently retired, and um, he was famous for not wearing a watch at all during the run leg of the. I don't think he even wore watch uh, a watch on the on the cycle leg, but he never wore watch in a race situation. Hmm. And when I asked him about that, and I said, "Don't you want to know sort of how fast you're running per kilometer and that sort of thing?" He said, "No. In a race situation for him, he's just got to run as hard as he perceptibly can run." Because if he starts looking at his pace or his heart rate, it's going to make him start questioning himself. Whereas in a race situation, he's got to catch the guy in front of him to win the race. Therefore, yeah. it doesn't matter whether the heart rate monitor is just telling him to slow down or his pace per kilometer is faster or slower. He's got to run as hard as he can for 42 kilometers in order to win the race. That's mm. his goal. And he was... Maybe an extreme version, but I absolutely believe in that. I think when I'm in a race situation, which is not very often, I often change the screen on my on my um, site on my bicycle that doesn't show the heart rate, really because I don't want to know what that is because it will hold me back and I won't mm. be able to get into the break or do anything so, like that. So <laughs> the only circumstance that like a guy like James there might regret that is if he gets off the bike three minutes ahead. Because then he doesn't. But he's still going to run as hard as he can perceptively. But there, you see, for me, the biggest risk is that you start too fast and you hit the first 15Ks, five seconds a K faster than you know you're capable of. And you pay for that with five, 10 seconds a K for the next 20. And in that instance, you probably might be wise to actually hold back a little bit. So, so that's the only circumstance. Because I, I agree with you. If you get off the bike and there's someone else next to you or in front of you, I mean, you know, you might as well go for it and race. Yeah. But if you if you're ahead, the ability to manage your effort might actually be the thing that saves you from your own excitement and ambition. Well, I'll take <laughs> you back to your own PhD and suggest that your body's internal pacing system is actually quite good. It does, it is, but <laughs> but again, like race races mess it up. Mm. Like the adrenaline and the circumstances of a race. We've all done. I mean, I Knowing all that I do, I still start races too fast and then mm. pay for it badly and then say to myself, well, why was I so so stupid and um, big greedy at the start, you know? Maybe. So that's but, – but I mean, yeah, like these days you can ride to power and so on. If you're going up Alpe d'Huez and your rival attacks you and you don't go because you're paying attention to your power, I'd call that pretty stupid. Yeah. <laughs> you have to. You have to respond. But that said – We've seen cases where guys just ride looking at the stem because they know that 420 watts is their ability. And if they go to 440 to match a, a surge for two minutes, they'll pay for it. As an actual fact, it has made racing more mechanical. Mm. And there's a debate, I suppose, whether that's good or bad. Mm. And I suppose that's what Pogaccia doesn't do. Yeah. He's not doing that at all if he's not wearing a heart monitor doing a climb stage. You're looking, he's going at, his, on you're looking at power. He's looking at power, I'm sure. Yeah. Because yeah. power is at least objective, you mm. know. And, and again, this is the coming back to heart rates. The problem with heart rates in training as well is that it is subject to various factors that confound it. Just like heart rate variability, as Marco spoke about a list of those things, so is heart rates. Time of day, uh, caffeine. If you have a meal, your heart rate's higher because your metabolic rate's elevated and heart rate picks that up. So if you don't understand the half a dozen things that affect heart rates and you train to it, then you might very well make some mistakes mm -hmm. by reacting to things you shouldn't. So that's an important concept. And I still believe the best application of heart rate and training is to act as a handbrake on your easy days. That, that's, the, that's the most important thing. Is like you know 
that for an easy ride or run, you want to be in zone one or two and two. And that means keeping the heart rate below 151, whatever it is. So then sit in the 140s and be comfortable and and don't fall into the... So, so in other words, without that, you'd be tempted to fall into the trap of, I feel good, I'm going. And you spend all your time in that middle, in that middle zone, right, that we've mm. spoken of before, and you hurt yourself. So that's the one application. And then the final one that I would just mention is the degree to which your heart rate returns to resting or normal values after exercise is also a good indication of your training status. Elite athletes can stop training, and within a minute or two, their heart rate is not right down at rest, obviously, because they're still fixing the metabolic <laughs> consequences of training, but it drops very quickly. Mm. And so heart rate recovery in the first one or two or three minutes is another important metric. And in fact, many years ago now, more than 20 years ago, uh, researchers here developed a heart rate recovery test that could be used in team sports to try and identify whether players were adapting or not. So what it, what it involved was, you know, like the bleep, you know, the bleep test. Yep. 20 meters and you run shuttles. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> so they, they said, okay, a lot of teams, rugby, soccer, cricket, whatever, have got access to that kind of space. So instead of a maximum shuttle run, what they said is let's do a sub-max shuttle run where we go for two minutes and then we rest for one. And then we go for two minutes, rest for one, two minutes, rest for one. And they measured the heart rate in those one-minute rest periods. And that became the index of whether the athlete had recovered. And when I was with the South African 7 team for a number of years, we used to do that once a week. Mm. Every Monday, that was the test that was done. The guys would run according to set pace. They used to use these beeps, you know, like you hit the line at this beep, this beep, this beep. <coughs> and we used to measure the heart rate recovery in that final one minute. And it was pretty good. Like if we'd flown from here to New Zealand, everyone's heart rate recovery was lower than it normally mm. would be because mm. of the travel stress. If they'd been training hard the week before, it was lower. If they were recovered and adapted, it was higher. So mm. that was a handy test. And then a few years ago, a guy called Robert Lamberts, who's now in Stellenbosch, Dutch um, PhD, well, graduate, he's, he's got his PhD. He modified that for cycling. And so there's now a, a sub-maximal cycling test where you can start off and you have to ride a certain power output for a couple of minutes, then recover, then another couple of minutes, then recover. And again, the degree to which your heart rate drops in recovery is an indication of your physiological state and readiness to take on hard training. So those are the, those are the ways that you use heart rate sensibly to train. You don't, you don't treat heart rate as your uh, coach <laughs> driving you on from the sideline. You don't fall into the trap of being dogmatic about it, mm -hmm. but you rather play detective and you pay attention to recoveries, heart rate, variation, uh, heart rate variability like we've just explored with Marco, um, the relationship between heart rate and RPE and pace or power, whatever it is. And if you, if you do that, then you can extract value from heart rate, but you don't, you definitely don't say, I must train at this heart rate today or I must race at that heart rate next week, whatever it is. That's... Mm -hmm. That's how not to do it. Yeah. Mm. Well, I hope those of you interested in this very fascinating subject around heart rate and heart variability have learned a lot from this. I certainly have. And uh, my training has been enriched. And I'm looking forward to using this new app, which I've already downloaded. And I'm looking forward to putting that to test tomorrow and seeing how my heart rate variability adjusts every day and helping my training every single day. I guess that's what it's all about, making training a bit more friendly and a bit more enjoyable because on those bad days, you learn to take it easy when you should. 
So a big thank you to Marco Altini for his time today, of course, to Professor Ross Tucker. And from us, it's goodbye. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.